Welcome back to the Time for Heroes podcast. This week's guest is Dominic Masters of The Others. The Others shot to fame in 2005, winning the John Peel Innovation Award. I spoke to Dominic about chart success, his portrayal in the media and the music industry as a whole. Some novel ways in which The Others connected with their fan base via guerrilla gigs. We spoke about signing with Al McGee and we spoke about what the others are up to now and at the end Dominic picked his heroes to come for a dinner spoke about all this and a whole lot more thanks very much everyone as well for supporting the podcast over the year I wish you all a very Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year and I'll be back in the new year with lots more thanks very much Dominic Masters it's a pleasure to have you on what I do with my guests at the start is just get you to tell me about your early life growing up, where you grew up, how your education was and how you became into the music industry. So just kind of blast off for there. Yeah. Um, growing up was was pretty tricky at times. Um so uh, I got born in Bristol um, Mm -hmm. and then I grew up in Somerset um, in a small town called Wells Um, it's about 20,000 people and then when I was three my parents divorced my dad went with my mum's best friend Mm -hmm. and went and married her and he had two kids with with her. And then it was just me and my mum at three, really. And then from three years old up until 11, um, she went out with a guy called Craig um, from Manchester. And that's that's why I'm a Manchester City fan. Right. Then she went out with a guy called Dave. And she went out with a guy called Simon. And then... When I was 11 years old, uh, she settled down with my stepfather, a guy called Rob, and she's been with him ever since. Um, But growing up until sort of Rob came around sort of early teenage years was pretty tricky because there was obviously different guys around. I was on a dinner dinner card at school um, because we were on social security. so yeah that kind of gives you sort of some idea of our uh, financial capabilities when you're on a lunch card and that yeah um, it's just constant constant upheaval as well then isn't it if you if your mum's going through all these different relationships yeah i mean it was it was you know when rob settled down with us when i was a teenager that helped a lot uh, my dad wouldn't pay any child maintenance for me when I was growing up so that made it really problematic and quite difficult yeah for my mum to raise me on her own because dad wouldn't pay any maintenance um so that was like you know you kind of think your father would pay for your son but he wouldn't so it it made it a bit tricky you know it made it difficult at, at times um but what i'd say is that 
it, it made me independent. So because there was no money around, um, I'd say I'll obviously go and get jobs and shit. Um, mm-hmm. So my first job, I worked as, um, you know, those free papers that go through yeah, the doors. Like the local yeah, ones, like, yeah. I, yeah. It's that kind of shit. So I, I used to deliver the Midsummer Set Scan, it was called. And I had to deliver 400 papers for seven pounds. If you think that, I know that sounds like, what? 400 papers for seven pounds. But when you're like nine, ten years old, seven quid's all right. Yeah. And it's doable, so, isn't it? You can, you can do yeah, 400 pieces. Exactly. It's doable because you've got energy because you're young. Yeah. Um, so I did that for a couple of years. Then I had a paper round. Then I worked in a garage um as a petrol pump attendant highly glamorous jobs these you know being a petrol pump attendant um <laughs> i did that for a couple of years but then i knew i was going to go to university even though my grades weren't good i knew i would go through clearing somehow um, so then i worked in a bottling factory um because we had cow and gate in somerset the baby food place uh-huh. I worked there. I worked there to save money for university. I worked as a bin man um, for two months to save money for uni. Um, I worked in a meat processing abattoir in Shepton Mallet, like a proper slaughterhouse. Mm-hmm. My job each day was to get a cow um, and then wash all of the blood and the intestines out of the cow push the cow down the conveyor belt i did that for a bit um and then i worked in a cheese factory scraping the mold off of cheese um so that the moldy bits would go in and make cheese and onion crisp flavor oh um, no 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 oh i did that for, <laughs> I did that for um two stints two stints of three months each right so i got i got that money and that got me, I got through clearing at uni because my grades, they wanted C's and I didn't get the C grades. I got E's, mm-hmm. two E's. And I didn't think I was going to get through on two E's. But then past my um, clearing uh, interviews with the lecturer, they let me into London Guildhall University, um, which is now called... Uh, London Metropolitan, I think. Mm-hmm. And then I ended up getting a 2-1 degree from there. But if right. I had not done that factory work, I would never have had any money to come up to London because when I come up to London the first time, it took two and a half months to get the grant and the loan through from the government. You weren't getting it through until about, I think I got mine in November eventually. Right. If I hadn't have had that money from working in all the factory work. Yeah, you're already two months in. Exactly. Fuck, fuck knows what I would have done. So I yeah. did, they were sort of my early jobs. After uni, um, well, during uni, I worked in a call centre, which was like, you're like battery chickens, all in rows, thousands of rows in big call centres. So I did that for like through uni the last two years so that I had enough money to pay the rent. And then when I graduated, I went back to the call centre 
and I thought, do you know what? I can talk a lot. I, I really can talk. Mm-hmm. It's not an amazing skill, but I can talk. So I thought, fuck it. I'll go for a sales job. I'll just go for it. You know, what have I got mm-hmm. to lose? Because all I know is that if you don't make money in the first three months, they sack you. But I thought, fuck it, I'll go for it. Um, so then I ended up in a sales job, stayed with that company for four years, and then the band got signed. And then after the band finished and everything, in terms of like being professional, I just went back to doing sales jobs again. Right. So they, that's been sort of my early life, a little bit about re-education and how I luckily got through clear into uni then sort of uh, my jobs after the band. So that, I think, covers the first yeah. first bit of the question. So uh, obviously you had a, you've got a, a strong work ethic. Do you think that's partly because of your life with your mum growing up and you knew you, you had to do these well, jobs to survive? Well, the thing is, uh, mum didn't have enough money for pocket money. It's been well documented what my mum also did um, mm-hmm. in previous interviews, and I don't really want to sort of go through through that. Yeah, yeah, it's, been well cool. do- it's been well documented before. Um, but, you know, there was no pocket money there. So wh- when I was a kid, I just, I needed to buy things and I couldn't get them off my mum because we had no fucking money. So I just thought, well, go to work. <laughs> do you know what I mean? It's yeah. not that I wanted to. It was never that I, I've never ever wanted to do any of these jobs. <laughs> I've never wanted to have a work ethic. It's just that there was, if I didn't do it, I wouldn't be able to get like a pair of trainers or stuff like that. Yeah. But, but that's the thing you had the vision then at that age to see, to set yourself a goal. That, this is what you need and this is how you're going to get yeah. it. Um, yeah. And obviously, you know, just to buy records, records were so fucking hard. Like, mm-hmm. What city did you grow up in? I, I grew up in Motherwell, which is just outside of Glasgow. I know. Okay, but Motherwell to Glasgow, it's about eight miles. Spot on, mate. That's, that's class. Yeah. No, because mm-hmm. I remember, because I spent a lot of time in Glasgow, um, been to Govan, had some cracking times in Glasgow. Most of my friends live in a place called Erskine. Right. Um, so Davy McClatchy. Is one of my best friends, and he lives in um, he lives in Erskine. Um, mm-hmm. But you know, when you grew up in Motherwell, you could get to Glasgow, right, to buy records. Yeah, and that was the thing. Is like Somerset is fucking. It's in the middle of nowhere. Like there's nothing. There's loads of rich kids around. There's loads of like landed gentry who go to public schools, and then there's a load of us peasants that live in the middle of all these posh people in fields. The nearest city was 25 miles away. The bus took two hours to get to fucking Bristol. So I'd either go to Bristol or go to Bath for two hours on this dopey bus just to go and get like my One Velvet Underground album, you know, get my (laughs) Sonic Youth album on a CD that I'd done two paper round shit for. So, you know, over two <laughs> weeks to be able to get this fucking Velvet Underground album. So even buying the albums became a fucking problematic thing because you yeah. had to travel 25 miles to buy them. 
So, <laughs> yeah, it's all oh, the struggles, man. Um, it's, it's so much easier now, isn't it? But Aye. then we're all oh, so much more corporate. Everything's done via Amazon now. It's all kind of to line somebody else's pockets. At uni, it was politics you were doing, wasn't it? Yeah, well, the thing is, my A-levels were such a disaster, right? I, I took three A-levels and I ended up dropping geography because mm-hmm. I, I just, I wasn't in the frame of mind to take it. Let's put it that way. I passed general studies on an E. I passed politics on an E. And I thought, well, I can't really study general studies as a degree. I've got to do, you know what I mean? I've got to do politics. So I ended up doing politics for the degree. And I just, I don't know, I just swam like a fish to water. Ended up getting a 2-1 degree. Uh-huh. Um, surprised the family. The first person from the master's family ever to get a degree. So, um, yeah, it, it was quite surprising. Right. Very surprised. And what were you, what was the, what would have been the end goal with that then? With you, what sort of jobs were you looking for? from getting a degree or was there any intention of getting a job or were you already thinking about a band? Do you know what? You've got a really good point here. Right. So I always knew about the band, but that's something we'll come on to in a minute. But job wise, you've got a really, really good point. So this was the thing. I graduated with this great degree that I wasn't expecting to have. I was expecting to get maybe a third, like a two, a two, a 2-3 or a 2-2. Two, two. I wasn't expecting to get a 2-1. So I suddenly thought, oh, shit, I've got brains on paper. <laughs> right? I could get a decent job, you know, something, like, sensible. So then I started applying for, like, civil service jobs because I thought, well, public sector, I've done politics. It all makes sense now. So I applied for, like, loads and loads of jobs. And then realised after like six months of applying for jobs that, you know, there was 400 people going for each application and they were only taking the degree certificates of anyone in the top 20 university. Whereas if you look at London Metropolitan these days, I think it's ranked as the top 10, top 10 worst universities. Right. Um, so it, it was, you know, what is formerly called a polytechnic. Uh-huh. So I realised after about six months, I was never going to get a job in a decent civil service because my I've got a degree, even though it's good, it's from a shit university, you know? Right. So I just thought the only thing was to do was to do that sales job um, because I knew I'd been in the call centre for three years. I seemed to be just clicking, clocking in, clocking out. If I go to a sales job, I'm still clocking in and clocking out, but I can make commission on top of my wages. Yeah. So I thought there's no way else I can, you know, do anything else at the moment. So I just went into it thinking, let's see what happens and ended up becoming a manager there. And now I'm head of business development for a company many years later. So, so, so what were you? What were you selling? Oh, lots of things. Um, 
I started out doing um, publications, um, uh, Hotel Management International, right. quite an exciting, exciting publication. Um, so you're selling lots of advertisements to carpet manufacturers, toilet <laughs> manufacturers, in enamel companies, um, companies that make sinks, um, taps. It, it's quite exciting. Um, yeah. So I did that for I did that for four years. Then after the band obviously had had our fame, um, then I sold IT packages where I would be like a matchmaker and I would bring an IT director through to meet Microsoft sales director, for instance. I did that for a few years. Then I moved into cybersecurity and I connected chief security officers or chief information security officers with, say, the head of sales at Symantec or McAfee. Right. Uh, big, big security companies. And then I got headhunted and asked to go to, because um, I've got not a, too bad um, connections over the years, um, and I was asked to go and head up a business development division um, for finance, uh, finance director Europe. Um, so I've been doing that the last four years, three years. Yeah. So, I mean, all joking aside, like, I mean, they're, they're good jobs, you know what I mean? They're technical jobs and jobs that no everyone could do. So, I mean, like, you can't, you can't be so down in your work, you know what I mean? You're, you're working and you're, you still go to the band to a certain extent, haven't you? Uh, the, the band's still going, so... It's just we're alive, yeah. Just by the skin of our teeth, old boy. Yeah, by the but, skin of our teeth. But it must be better than like you get to do what you want with your with, with your music more, didn't you? Because if you're one of these A-list pop stars, you're not really in any, any control, and you know. Well, it, you know, it sort of. It goes into sort of your <coughs> sort of questions about this. So, you know, we'll go into the questions properly in a minute, but what you're asking a lot of the time is that, okay, so when you're on an independent label or um, you're putting your product out yourself, yeah, you do have great artist control, which is superb. But nobody knows that that product's out there because you haven't got the machine of a major label behind you. So when people almost cuss me for the fact that I turned down two albums with Rough Trade to take one album with Universal, they look at me like I'm some kind of madman. What you have to look at is that I knew I had one chance, right? I knew two albums and... Rough trade, probably not going to get me anywhere, really, because the publicity's not there. The Libertines, it took ages for them to get to the where they are today. Mm-hmm. My point, my point is, when I had Universal for those two years, I knew I had a chance. So the advance was almost triple what Rough Trade offered. So sometimes you have to think, okay, 
this is my one stab at it. Do right. I want to just tread water on rough trade for a few years? And they'll probably drop me anyway. And Or do I want one big hurrah in terms yeah. of one big smash at it? One Mate, big go at it? That's absolute genius. And See. fucking just go for it. See, once you put it like that, I'd, n- I'd never thought it like that. And that kind of... It makes so much Just sense. Fucking go for it and go wild and have a two years where people okay, they might be sick of me because I'm in the press all the time, but I have one chance at it. Well, let's get on to the, the music. The initial um, steps. Initial yeah. steps into music. How you was there yeah. any bands before the others? Well, it was <laughs> it it wasn't a good deal. Uh, <laughs> okay so this is what happened I was at university and I thought yes I want to be in a band it's that kind of thing isn't it you really like you know you think oh I could sing some songs at that time it was like the period of nothingness 96 through to 2001, where there was just five years of shite. Yeah. Um, I think bands like Symposium were quite a big band at the time. Gay Dad were quite a big band at the time. Mm-hmm. You know, there, there, was, there was not much around. And I was in a, I was in a band... Well, I joined a band, sorry, um, who put an advertisement in the old publication Melody Maker. Yeah. Do you remember that? Yeah, I used to buy that every week. Yeah, that and Enemy. I, I preferred Melody Maker to Enemy and then ended up buying Enemy when Melody Maker closed. Yeah, I was the same. Melody Maker was, uh, at that time, it was a, like a wee shiny magazine, wasn't it? Where NME was still kind of a paper. So I preferred Melody Maker. I did. I, I preferred Melody Maker. It was just, of the two, it was better, but just the way it was written. And it gave you hope that there was still a chance in this like shite scene after, because like 90 through to 96 was like fucking wicked. Loads of decent bands. Stereo Lab were great. Beastie Boys were great. Pavement were great. It, Arab Strap were great. You know, sorry, Arab Strap slightly later. But you know that that period was a it was a really good period. Mm-hmm. And then we were going into this and Melody Maker. I thought I saw an advert. I thought, all right, he likes the buzzcock. Likes the fall. Okay, not many people write the fall. I like the fall. I really do. I love the fall. Okay. He's written the fall. He's written the buzzcocks. He's written magazine. Oh, fucking hell. He's quite buzzcocky. And he put the cure. Right, the cure. I thought, fuck it. I'll just go for it. And it said, uh, send a demo tape. I thought, oh, can't do that. Can't do that. But right. What I'll do is I'll phone the bloke. And if he's not in, I'll leave a voice message of me singing. <laughs> and if he don't like it, he can tell me to fuck off. So 
So I sing some bollocks down the phone the best way I can in the most uh, Dominic Masters kind of delivery. Mm-hmm. And then Jimmy phoned up and said, uh, do you want to come down? We reckon you're our singer. I was like, great. Go down to Brighton. I'm only like 19 years old. Quite young. I've got black hair, dyed, like the Brian Molko look, placebo. Uh-huh. <laughs> you know, it's, well, it's that period. It's that period. And um, I had black eyeliner and uh, very black hair, black leather jacket, black trousers, and a black t shirt. So I meet the band. They say I'm the singer after the first rehearsal. And then the band is. I get to name the band because I'm the singer, which I think is quite a cool thing. You get to join the band and you get to name it. So I thought, I thought it's wicked. I get to name the band. I thought, all right, I come up with the most awful name, Magneta. Pretty poor, pretty poor. Sounds like uh, some sort of superhero, doesn't it? So I call the band Magneta. In all of my 19, 19 years of wisdom. <laughs> <laughs> and off we go. We play some gigs. We do pretty well. The Buzzcocks ask us to support us, uh, to support them. And uh-huh. I'm like, what? We've got a Buzzcock support? This and is how, incredible. How early on are we talking for this? I'm 19, man. This uh-huh. is 1997. But, yeah, so it's actually. We're in like a couple of months of joining the band. You've got that support. Yeah, once we've done the first three to six gigs, we got yeah, that's that's gigs. mental, isn't it? Yeah, but I'm not a bad front man. I'm not being <laughs> I'm not being cocky, but I'm not bad. No, I'm not. I wouldn't say I'm a shit front man. I might not be able to sing very well, but I look real. Yeah, not a lot, and not a lot of front mans look real because they're not. Mm-hmm. You know, they're just playing a game, singing some songs that don't mean fuck all to them, and most of them are about love. You know, that's what you get with a lot of singers. They're happy to just prance around at the front and sort of look like the eye candy mm-hmm. and sing love songs. Whereas, you know, we're quite we're quite in your face. <laughs> <laughs> so we got so we got the buzzcock support on the base of the first few gigs. Then Electric Six coming for us. Now, I knew nothing about Electric Six. But there's some kind of American band. It was their first gig in the UK. And they say, okay, we're going to support them in Brighton. So we do the gig. And then after the gig, we get offered a single deal. Because, you know, we've gone out from Buzzcock support. Mm-hmm. Electric Six are doing, doing well. Enemy are obviously back in Electric Six. Melody Maker back in Electric Six as well. And we get offered the singer there. And I'm in the last year of my degree. Right. So what do I do? So I think, I think, do you know what? We're, we're not good enough. I didn't think we were a good enough band. I thought we did well to get the Buzzcock support. We did well to get Electric Six, but it wasn't, it wasn't worth me quitting my degree. I, I was in my last year. Mm-hmm. So I quit the band and said, look, I just got to concentrate on my degree. And then I got my 2-1 degree. Then 
after I got the two one degree, me and my wife, we divorced. We, I'd not mentioned Ren. I'd been together with her for four years. Right. We, divor- we divorced. It's about 2000, 2001, something like that. And then I'm suddenly living on Brick Lane with a nice flat and a job and no friends and no wife and no boyfriend and no nothing. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, what do I do now? <laughs> you know, what the fuck do I do now? I've got to get a band, haven't I? I've got to do something. I thought, right, I've, I've thought, at least, I, first of all, I need to go and find out who I've got an idea that's going to get me up the ladder. Because you've only got to support bands who you like. Otherwise, there's no way of getting up the ladder. Mm-hmm. So I thought, I'm going to watch loads of bands. So I spent, like, 2000 I would say probably 1999 through to 2002, going to maybe two gigs a week. Right. I'm serious about that for three yeah. years. Like solid. The effort in, and I realised that the best bands around were the Parkinsons uh-huh. and a car and a cult. Right. I realized that they were just genius. So I started like, I don't know, becoming almost like, um, like stuck to the band. <laughs> where, <laughs> where, wherever the Parkinson's were, I was there. Uh-huh. Not rehearsals, but every single concert they ever did, I was there. Yeah. Um, and then I started seeing the libertines a bit and i thought they were pretty smart and intelligent and i knew a guy called scarborough steve it was mm-hmm. a guy called steve bedlow now yeah. i was not a bad pool player um not through choice um more when i was younger the only times i got to see my father was on a saturday um, but my dad didn't spend any time with me. He just took me to watch him play football. Mm-hmm. So the only time I could get to spend any time with my dad was to wait until he'd played his football match. And then what I would do, I'd say, Dad, do you want a game of pool? So I could spend some time with him. And that's how I got good at pool. Because my dad would beat me every time on purpose so that he didn't have to spend any time with me. What I did, I started getting so I started getting good at pool so I could beat my dad so he'd have to play me a second time. He'd have to play me a third time. And I'd embarrass him in front of his friends. So it was the only way of getting close to my dad was to play him at pool. Right. So I started by by maybe nine or ten, I was getting good at pool. And then when I came to London, I didn't have many friends. And I'd go to the good mixer and I'd play pool because I knew I was good enough. And it was winner stays on. So I'd stay on the table for six or seven games until Mm -hmm. I met Steve Bedlow. And I'd met Steve Bedlow and Steve was a better pool player than me. He'd like (laughs) trash me. He'd absolutely trash me. 
Right. And when you when you'd been up on the table most of the day and you're looking quite good, Steve would walk in with his boot cut jeans, like really cool fucking like cowboy boots, hair down to his shoulders. He looked like he was in the Stooges. Uh-huh. And he'd beat me on the first game. Just slaughter me. And I'd been on for five, six games. And then I thought, right, I've got to be friends with this guy. He's just brilliant. Then in that period, I'm watching the Parkinson's. He's friends with Pete Doherty in the Libertines. He introduces me to Pete. Um, I'm friends with the Parkinson's. Um, we're all being friendly together. And then the mm-hmm. Parkinson's go up to me and say, um, what do you do in life? Right? This is where it gets scary. Because you don't want to tell them, hey, man, I'm a suit. Yeah. I sit in an office and I sell advertising space in a magazine. Yeah? Because it doesn't do much for street cred. No. But when you've got to pay the bills, sometimes you've got to do things that you might not want to do in life. You've got to, you know, go to work. And it might not be cool because I'm not like all of these like rich musicians you see these days who've got mummy and daddy to back them or went to the Brit school or Mm -hmm. went to some posh school or went to a posh school where there was a big music department or a comprehensive school where there was a music department. You know, I didn't have any of that. I just had to sort of go, I know I'm not bad at singing. I think I could be a front man, but I've still got to pay my way. But when you're like hanging around with bands that you admire, like the Parkinson's and the Libertines at the time, I couldn't go, wow, I sit on a phone all day and I make a hundred calls a day. That's what I do. Is that cool? It wasn't cool, was it? So what did I do? I didn't tell him that. I said, I'm in a band. They said, what band are you in? I said, uh, I'm in uh, I'm in the others. <laughs> I said, uh, okay. And uh, <laughs> we're in a club at the time. And Victor Torpedo is the lead singer of the Parkinson's. Flicks his fingers and he goes, Max, come over here. This is Max <laughs> Mitchell. Max Mitchell is the fucking uh, club promoter for Club for Losers. And Club for Losers used to run as a satellite club in uh, comparison to Dirty Water Club that PJ ran. Uh-huh. PJ's club, Dirty Water Club, was the best club in the whole of London. The club for Losers was the second best club in the whole of London. All for rock and roll. So he calls over Max and says, Max, Dominic tells us that he's the lead singer of a band called The Others. I think we should give them a gig. (laughs) (laughs) Like, really? So. Really? So. Max got his diary out in front of everybody in the club and said, uh, we're putting you on in two weeks. Joe Strummer has just died. It's Joe Strummer's memorial gig at the club. Jesus. Parkinson's, are head- 
The Parkinson's are headlining. There's eight bands, and you're first on at seven. Good luck. Yeah, no pressure. Go and get yourself a band. <laughs> I'm shitting it. Absolutely shitting it. Slightly frightened. But no, but this is my chance. I can do this. I've been in a band before, and we nearly got signed. I can do this again. I think, right. What am I going to do? Who do I, what guitarist do I know? I know no one. I'm in London. I work in a fucking sales job. You know, I'm not like hanging around with musicians, like looking cool. I knew the Libertines a bit through Stephen Bedlow, you know, Scarborough Steve, and I knew the Parkinson's. And I went to a couple of gigs each week, but I didn't know musicians. But I knew Jimmy from my first band. And I knew Jimmy was a good guy, the bald guy who's in the others. So I say, Jimmy, this is what happened. Jimmy goes, all right, I'm going to join your band. I say, we need a bass player, we need a drummer. He goes, I'll get us a bass player and drummer. Then we did three rehearsals in two weeks. I wrote six songs in two weeks. We did the gig. And then after the gig, the guy from Domino Records, um, I forget what his name is now, come over and said, when's your next gig? And that's how we started. And then that, I had to find I, I had to find us a fucking second gig within a month uh, just to play to this guy. Oh, I fucking can't remember his name from Domino Records. And I did a gig in, two, in a month's time just for him. Because I thought, wow, we're in with a chance. It's our second gig. Uh, that is, that's <laughs> crazy. I, I, I didn't even know that's too. how you started. That's mental. Um, obviously, before we before we get into music too much, because I, I forgot this question about football. Um, uh, yeah. You're a big football fan, aren't you? Man well, City. I'll tell you how it is. Uh, growing up, my dad was a Bristol City fan, mm-hmm. and my mum's first boyfriend, after my dad divorced with my mum, was a guy called Craig, and he's a Mancunian, and he took me to my first football matches, and I was just like, well, my dad didn't take me to fucking watch Bristol City, did he? Mm. Like, do you know what I mean? Craig... <laughs> Craig took me all the way to fucking Manchester to go and watch Manchester City play. And, like, I stood on the Kipax for the first time. And, like, I was six, seven years old. And I'm on the Kipax. And, like, City won, like, 4 nil, And it was just, like, we were in the second division. Like, we were in some shit fucking division in those days. And everybody's pissing on us. And it was just like, man, this is my club. This is, like, this is, this is everything. Then I spent... All of school being kicked the fuck out of in terms of not kick the fuck out of violently, but kick the fuck out of verbally because I'm a city fan. It's probably a bit like supporting Motherwell, you know. Yeah, oh, like, no, 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 no. I don't support <laughs> you Rangers. Uh, you no, Rangers no, 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 no. Celtic. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you got there, man. I'll go into that. So, and like growing up, like, I've got so much shit 
for being a City fan. Primary school was written off. City were in the second. You know, secondary school, I was the butt of most football jokes because I was a City fan. By the time the band was going on, City was starting to, like, show promise. You know, we'd, we'd dropped to the third division, right? And then Joe Royal came in. I remember this so well, right? I remember this so well. It was the 18th of December. We were in the third division, right? And we were fucking sixth bottom, right? I thought, it can't get much lower than this. And then that season, we went up in the playoff final. Paul Dickoff equalised with a ball that hit his knee and went into the net. We beat Gillingham on penalties. Joe Royal took us up from the third division to the second division to the first division, which is now the Premier League. Uh-huh. And I was back. And it was just like I'd waited so long for this. And then we had Keegan for a bit and Sven for a bit. And I was thinking, yeah, you know, we're just coasting mid-table. I'm quite happy. And then when we started winning things, I stopped. It all got a bit weird. I wasn't used to winning the league. I wasn't used to winning the FA Cup. I wasn't used to winning the Charity Shield or the League Cup. I wasn't used to having good players play for us. And then I went to see City a few times. And I love City and they will always be my team. But I'm not like an Arsenal fan or a Chelsea fan or um, a Liverpool fan or a United fan that is looking for glory. That's why I'm a City fan, really. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm not in for the glory. So when City started winning things, I stopped watching us. I couldn't, I couldn't bring myself to watch us because I, I thought I might even curse us. I just wanted City to win each week and I'll just stay out of the way and I won't watch us anymore. So, to be honest with you, I haven't watched that since we started winning. Right. And to so, be honest with you. Obviously, you, you, brought it, uh, you brought out a song, Stan Bowles, which is about an old a boy that played for QPR in it in the 70s. Correct, and Nottingham Forest, also so, at Forest as well. Yeah, so I'd, I'd never, I'd never heard him, uh, and I know a lot about football, I'd never heard him at the time, but it was, from what I've heard, he was quite a kind of stylish kind of flair player, would I, would I be right in that? So is that the type of players you like then? Like, what? What used to be good about watching City in the old days is, like, we wouldn't be the most amazing side, but we'd always have one or two really good players, like mm. Giorgio Kinklatsi. Yeah, you remember him? Brilliant. I fucking love Giorgio Kinklatsi. We sold him to Ajax for 5.5 million. Should have stayed with us. Um. But that's what it used to be like. You used to watch City and they'd have a load of shit players and then one quality player. And you'd go away even though we'd been defeated and you'd think, wow, at least we've got Giorgio Kinklatsi. And it's a bit like that with Stan Bowles. It was like, you know, that QPR team in 75 came so fucking close to winning the league. Mm-hmm. Like, they were robbed. They blew it in the last four games. The Norwich game is an example. 
Um, Liverpool really that season, 70, I think it's 75, 76, if I'm right, or 74, 75, but I'm pretty sure it's 75, 76, is when basically QPR, a team that is, you know, a mid-table premiership team, really, mm-hmm. nearly won the league, like a Leicester. You know, it was it was so close and they, they lost it. But that side, you know, if you look at the Stan Bowles that was playing for him, you know, if you watch how he played, absolutely incredible player in terms of his alcohol consumption, legendary. When he, after he'd left Queen's Park Rangers, he went on to play for Nottingham Forest. Forest at that time were managed by Brian Clough and won two European Cups. So was he on that? Uh, yes, he was, he, was in the sec- he was in the fucking second Forest team that won the European Cup the second time. I'm telling you, Stan Bowles is fucking legendary. Anyway, after he got his big payday at Forest, he went and played for Leighton Orient. The rumour was, at Leighton Orient, what he would do at half-time, he would have a half-pint in each of the four pubs on the corners when he was when he went to Brent um when he went to play at Brentford um because I think he was at Brent he was at Brentford or Leighton Orient one of the two uh-huh. I think it might have been Brentford not Leighton Orient and when he was at Brentford the four corners of Brentford have a pub on each corner and he had a half in each corner um pub in the 15 minutes for half time and then went back on the pitch and played. <laughs> that's brilliant. That's a hell of a story. <laughs> and then what Stan Bowles did is when I wrote the song, um, Stan Bowles, he sent me, see behind me, that's my bookshelf. Uh-huh. That's my flatmate's bookshelf. Mine's, <laughs> mine, mine's the smaller one. Right. Mine's just music books, is all I read is music autobiography. Uh, but, let's have a look around. Here we go. Uh, Stambos. Uh huh. <laughs> wow. That is Mr. Stanley Bowles' signature of one of the greatest players ever to play in England. Great. Yeah, I'm going to definitely check him out. I, I, I cannot believe he was in that Nottingham Forest team. Aye. I, so who I, would I, have I done do. that? Would that have been like with Mark O'Neill? Would he, Mark O'Neill would have been in that team, John Robertson? Yeah, the John Robertson, even though John Robertson had a, a considerable amount of pies, mm-hmm. this man played in two European term, European Cup finals. You know, the amount of pies John Robertson ate was quite considerable. He had, he had a bit of a belly on him. Yeah. But man, was he good. Yeah. Well, I can mind him, obviously, Martin and you, John Robertson at Celtic as a manager, an assistant manager. Um, and he was quite jobby then. But <laughs> he had some pies <laughs> when he played for Forest. Yeah. Um, oh, that's brilliant. 
I'm, that, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to check out Stan Bowles. I'm going to go down a Stan Bowles rabbit hole later. Uh, he's brilliant. He's brilliant. Right. So, back to the others. Obviously, we've found out about your initial steps. Um, some of the things you're famous for, obviously, Guerrilla Gigs. What was the idea behind Guerrilla Gigs? Was that just to get yourself noticed and it's a good way of connecting with fans, isn't it, I suppose? Well, it came purely accidentally, not not through wanting to do them. So mm-hmm. you got to look at it, picture the scene. I hate to say those words, but picture the, picture the scene. You know, it's fucking 2002, 2003, and 2004. And clubs are saying it's 16 plus, and venues are saying 16 plus. We're getting bigger all the time and we're growing, but our audience base are quite young. Mm-hmm. So there was times where we'd do a gig, but there'd be 50 kids who are on the street who've travelled from Ilford. So Ilford, there's a section of the other's fan base, mm-hmm. which is the 853 Kamikaze Division, which is called the Ilford Seven. Uh-huh. These seven lads, who are all about 15, had travelled to the gig from Ilford, and Ilford's fucking miles away. It's the kind of place you wake up on the night bus, and you go, oh, my God, I'm in Ilford. I fell asleep <laughs> at night. Oh, God, man. It's another hour to get just back into the East End. That's Ilford. Right? If you've got a place in Glasgow where you wake up, it's the last stop on the, on the night bus. Well, that's Ilford. Yeah. These kids had come in to watch us and got refused on the door they had no id or they had no fake id now the more sort of cool kids all had fake ids but maybe not all working class kids are so up on the game of the fake id scam they couldn't get in we felt awful because they couldn't get in they were kicking off outside and i thought yeah rightly so don't you go you go and fucking kick off I thought, wow, what are we going to do here then? And then someone said in the venue that they had an acoustic guitar. (laughs) I'm not going to do Kumbaya, my lord, or anything like that. But I thought, right, I'll go and get Jimmy. Jimmy, I explained the situation. He got the acoustic guitar. We ended up doing four or five songs for these seven kids and the other kids that were outside who couldn't get in. Then as the others progressed up the, uh, you know, the greasy pole to fame, uh-huh. we were playing considerably bigger gigs. And, and, more and more we, we, would do, we would do our best to use our 20 guest list places to get as many people into the venue as possible. We'd do things where we would open the fire escape, and to let people in, things like that. We did everything that we could. But sometimes you'd have really tight security and they were shit hot. And there was no way up that my brain and my genius would be able to get round their particularly high-class security. 
So in the end, what you would do is go, right, they've got us this time. There's no way we're going to get the 50 kids that are outside into this venue. They're all under 16. There's no way we're going to get them in. But then we started bringing a gorilla gig kit to those venues because those kids were outside. They couldn't get into the venue. And then we go and do like a song, you know, maybe six or seven songs outside the venue for those people that couldn't get in. So what you're saying is you were going to gigs and already planning and doing a gorilla gig. That's that's brilliant, man. Um, That's how we ended up doing it. Well, Um, it's just not... It was more that if you didn't do it, you looked like a cunt because you're going, oh, well, you've travelled all the way here, the venue won't let you in, and you're not doing anything for us, but you claim to be, like, looking after us. So we're like, all right, all right, all right, we'll do a gig outside the gig with whatever equipment we've got. And then it just kind of became the norm. You yeah. play in Newcastle, you go, oh, fucking hell, there's 20 kids that can't get in. All right, all right, we'll do three songs for you on acoustic outside or Glasgow, wherever we were. And that that's kind of why we ended up doing them, really. Mm-hmm. And But they progressed, didn't they, aren't they? Um, <laughs> yeah. BBC headquarters, Abbey Road Crossing, the Georgians yeah. at Leeds Festival, <laughs> Uh, on a tube train. Yeah. So, was, it, was this all your idea or was, this, was it the rest of the band part of this? Because it's, uh, this, it's this, mental, man. It's... <laughs> well, I just start, I just got to plug the computer in because the battery's on low. Uh-huh. Um, it was just, I thought about like up in the ante. You know? mm-hmm. I thought, well, we're doing these regularly because we have to, because otherwise yeah. the kids are never going to watch us play, are they? Because they're too young. So I thought, I, you know, we do those. And then I thought, well, how can we expand the expand the sort of craziness? So I thought I'd do a gig on a tube train. <laughs> Just to wind up people. Um, and that was fun because it does wind people up. And it kind of goes like, well, I'm legally allowed to do it. So why can't I? So I did it. Um, invading the BBC, you know, that was that was ballsy because they never knew what hit them. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and what, you know, it, what was that? What was the, the reason behind that? There was... We weren't getting enough airplay, really, as far as I was concerned. We were like... Mm-hmm. We were on a C, we were on a C level, um, so you get four levels of playlist, and we were on C. So um, like the A level, we were getting, like we were getting the played. odd, we were getting the odd play. Yeah, you know, now if, you're on the, if you're on the A list, what is that? You're getting played every hour or something. I don't, I don't think it's every hour, yeah. but it's something like. Well, you four do, times, I mean, there is some radio four stations four times a day. Yeah, I mean, there are some radio stations where, like, see if I'm at my work. And you get like commercial redoing, and you do hear the same songs just over and over again, um, to the point where and you that, just think that there's only like ten bands in the world that exist. <laughs> <laughs> so like, yeah, so you're away down the C list. 
well, they got a decent major behind them that are really pushing them on, on an A-list. And yeah, okay, you might not like those 10 or 11 bands because it's totally in your head all the time. But that's publicity, isn't it? You know, they've, yeah. got, they've got to get it into your skull until you're singing the lyrics to the other's song, William, while you're having a shit. Or, you know, you're going to bed and you're humming the tune to Got My Friend Called William, you know. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, We were on on that C list. We knew we weren't getting many plays. So I thought, right, we'll go and invade the BBC. (laughs) So we all trotted down to the BBC, told all the uh, fans that were on the website, said, right, get there for this time. The BBC didn't know this was actually happening. Um, and then we sort of turned up with 200 people and we invaded. <laughs> and then the security, the security, and they're going, what the fuck? <laughs> you know, you don't know what to do. The two, the two security guards and there's 200 of us and we're doing a gig in the reception. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, it was good fun. Yeah, and so <laughs> did, uh, did that get publicity though as well? Did did it help very in any way? So. That, very much so. So there was a knock-on effect there with the publicity too. Yeah, but we so, didn't get up. We didn't get up the ratings list with the BBC. All oh, right. So you didn't even get pushed up to the B list. <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> oh well, um, but. I mean, we're saying all this, but you had Jack Success. You had um, four songs in the top 40, which is an achievement. We were pretty lucky. I mean, what I would say is this, is that, you know, the the band was going from 2002, 2003, and then it was 2004. Those first two years, we were everywhere in London and I worked my balls off. I really tried so, so hard um, Mm -hmm. in terms of, I put in a discipline model where we would do the rehearsal in Brighton on the Sunday. We would either have the gig on the Friday or the Saturday somewhere in London. And then I would do all of the club nights, uh, record company nights, um, indie club nights, concerts in the week. Um, after I'd been to work, may I add, um, uh-huh. and use those bits as networking places where we might be able to get someone to hear our CD, where we might be able to get a support slot, or I might be able to talk my way into a support slot. I might meet a manager of a band who thinks, fuck it, I'll let this boy just support the band. You know, I did a lot of that for two years to get it to the stage where our fan base were quite connected to us because we're doing Mm -hmm. loads of after parties. The after parties are free. The fans are coming to the after parties in hundreds. Um, We're having after parties in houses. We're hiring out warehouses. We're hiring out cafes. We're hiring out restaurants. We're taking a whole pub. You know, like they have those uh, steam mobs uh-huh. A flash mob, sorry. Yeah. You know, I'd go and find a boozer in the East End that I knew was an old man's pub, and we'd just invade. 
200 of us <laughs> just because we could right and that's where you start to build like a loyalty so those first four singles you know they're charting at five thousands they're charting at two thousand they're charting at three and a half thousand they're charting at four thousand in that first week it's not much really you know mm-hmm. you might have your london fans a couple of thousand that's seen you and then you did the first tours and you did after parties in sunderland on a council house estate you went to glasgow and you went to a party in govan near the big um asda superstore uh-huh. um that's in govan right or like we did like after parties in portsmouth in a car park or in exeter in a hotel whatever it was but you're having those touch points in terms of engagement with your fan base so that builds some kind of loyalty because the fan base has sat down with the guy that wrote the song that they went to see and now they're drinking with that person as well or you know partying mm-hmm. there's a connection they go and watch us three months later in wolverhampton three months later in leicester three months later in nottingham wherever it is and it's more unlikely that they'll either meet me backstage in our dressing room meet me in the bar after the concert meet me in one of the parties and meet all of the band and we'll all hang out together and we'll make it all a deal in a few months time that also built a lot of loyalty from our fan base so that's why i think the first four singles sold quite well the album sold quite well but when you sign to a major there's also there's also limits of what you can achieve so when the deal is well Mr. Masters, you have to sell 100,000 records and, and your, your first album has to go gold. Well, I sold 60,000 and I was 40,000 short, you know? Mm-hmm. So I was close, but no cigar. <laughs> so should we all get and buy another copy? <laughs> <laughs> Too late now, Tony. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, but you could all get to do that. That that would um, maybe cut them off your back. I've been at work too long. Sure, but um, it's it's an achievement to get the um, these songs charting. It, there's no many bands now in your kind of style that would have any chart success. So it's it as an achievement. Another achievement was um, obviously it's pretty profound for a band like yourself, the John Peel Innovation Award. Um, oh, do you know what? I found it the other day. Did you? Right. Have you got it here? Hold on. Look, if anyone does see this, I am in tracksuit bottom. <laughs> this is the original one, right? So there was four obviously you get four band members. I'm the songwriter in terms of the lyricist, but the other other three are obviously the musicians. Uh-huh. I was given the original as the lyricist, 
and then the other three in the band got copies as the musicians. Got this thing that comes with it. That says the others on it. Uh-huh, I can yeah. see that. That's magic. Right. And then it goes. Thing is, someone broke it at a party once. Yeah, I, I, I'm pretty up. sure all these are was the same thing mm. happens. Mm. It's a bit blurred, but Aye. but that's that's yeah. it. I mean, I don't, the only I'm other put, person I'm not, I'm not putting my finger up to you. <laughs> <laughs> the only other person I know that's got one of those awards is um, a boy from Dundee, Chipsy, and then um, he's pals with the View, and I think the oh. View gave, I think the View, I think Kyle gave Chipsy one his one of their awards. I remember the View when they were yeah. younger lads, and um, they came to. One of our gigs, um, mm-hmm. I don't know if it was Edinburgh, or I don't know if it was Aberdeen. Maybe Dundee, Dundee, because they were from Dundee. So yeah, we never played Dundee. Right, so it might have probably been Edinburgh then. There was one where they they were they come to see us when they were younger, and they were playing their guitars on top of a bus shelter. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I remember that about them. Yeah, that sounds a bit right. Yeah. They were at the the gig. I don't know if they really wanted to see us. I think they were just there playing view songs to others. (laughs) Cool. So, um, because, I mean, they they would have ended up part of the kind of scene. Obviously, if they were young boys, they would have ended up kind of part of the bands coming up after yourself, which brings me on to... I can remember the front cover of NME. Do you know what I'm talking about? Where you, Doherty, the Paddingtons, there was, a few, there was other bands as well, weren't there? Selfish Cunt was there. Oh, uh, yeah. And um, I'm trying to think, what other bands were there? There was, there was, there was a good crowd um, of anyway. Oh, God. Neil's Children. That's right, yeah. Um, was was Johnny Burrell in those days, or was he around I, there? I don't know if he was. Pete? He was, was Pete sub- there? Yeah, Pete, Pete was, was there. there. Oh, I'm trying to think who else. Because uh, White uh, Sport was the White Sport, maybe there. Who, who was White the Sport? That was the Rakes, White, maybe the Rakes. The White Sport the was um, Adam. Adam Fajek, wasn't it? White Sport, is that right? They might have been there, and the Rakes might have been there. Yeah. And that might have been about it. I remember we all had to stand in a line outside mm-hmm. Buckingham Palace, um, and we were sort of uh, put as the, the next generation, so yeah. to speak, of music that was coming through. And it was, it was very much a sort of reflection of, like, okay, this is what happened in... 76, 77, 78, 79. And this is like the new punk of the day. But obviously, as um, other podcasts have discussed, they just missed out by giving it a name. So we're we're now known for the rest of our lives as Landfill Indie. <laughs> well, because I spoke to Lloyd. Oh, right. I love Lloyd. Lloyd, uh, Lloyd Dobbs, the, the Paddington's. And he was saying... He was saying that 
they didn't even know that the Paddingtons were only for London. They just assumed they were for London until they started talking and they were like, you're only for London. And they're like, well, you never <laughs> asked us. Yeah. <laughs> um, they supported us. Um, sorry, we got the first tour of the UK and McGee, um, Alan McGee, mm-hmm. who I'm going to come on to in one of your later questions. Um, he's going like, tight budget, no tour support, not much money for this first tour. And what I'd done is, in the old days, McGee wanted the deal to be a 360 deal, where he would manage me, but I'd also be on the record label. And I was like, uh-uh, You're, you, you must think I'm young. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not young. And I've, like I told you earlier, I read books about music autobiographies. And that's all I read. And I'd read a lot of music autobiographies before I met Alan. Uh So I realised you never had or you never could have as an artist to have a label also manage you. It's career suicide. Mm -hmm. To have them own you as a 360 deal. You've got no one to argue against because your management is also your fucking label. It's madness. <laughs> so I said to McGee, no, I'm ever so sorry about this. Um, I'd love you to manage me, and I know you managed Oasis and everything, but you're also my label. So this is madness. It's a conflict of interest. So I got myself a manager, uh-huh. make, make McGee my label, and then... Later, we'll speak about how McGee took me from Pop Tones through to Universal. Mm-hmm. But on the, his label, if I'd not had an independent manager, my first tour would have been a week across London. But because I had an independent manager that wasn't attached to the label, I got a five-week tour of the UK. And my five-week tour, I got to take two support bands that I chose, and one of them was called the Paddington. Right. So, right. So, do you see the difference? Yeah. I would have just bowed down to the label and McGee, and I had a one-week tour, and probably done fuck all, mm-hmm. or have an independent manager who's going okay. Get five weeks here. Let's cause riots. So, what was it? What then was the decision to take the Paddingtons? What was it? Yeah. Me, really. Yeah. I wanted the Paddingtons. What was it you liked about them? Kind of the, the um, punk kind of vibes. I thought they were pretty cool kids, really. Yeah. Um, I like Lloyd a lot. Um, Lloyd's like sort of the heart and soul. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I really like Lloyd. Um, you know that Marv's, Marv's cool as well. Mm-hmm. Um, Tom, I thought, was a natural um, singer. Josh, is he in the band anymore, sir? It's just moved on to pastures newer. Well, you know that they're, they're, they're actually playing some gigs um, at the tail end of the year. I'm going to see them, the, I think it's the 19th of December, I'm going to see them in Glasgow. And okay. I, I'm pretty sure it's, I'm pretty sure it's a full band. So Josh is, yeah. Josh is back? I think so. I think what he said was, don't quote me, and that's what I think. I think they're going to be doing a lot of stuff with Tom as well, because see, Tom's got his 
solo stuff. I think it's basically going to be Tom with the Paddington's backing them up. So, um, yeah, watch our space, but I, I'm going to see the Paddington's in December. So, I'd seen Josh was in another band, mm-hmm. so I did wonder if he was still with the Paddington's or he was with both bands. Well, so, I, I, I don't think the Paddington's have done much for... I think they, they came back for like a, a one-off gig in 2017. I've got notes here from the last... Um, with Lloyd? Yeah. Yeah, that's that. Let me find when... Uh, 2014, they, they played like a, a wee gig and then I don't think they've done anything. That's quite similar to us in that respect. Yeah. That That kind of... Really, that would sort of dovetail quite sort of into um, a bit of uh, you know where we've been kind of thing because mm-hmm. your your question after the the, the John Peel Award because like after that one it was about the portrayal in the press and the media mm-hmm. and and this this has been always like a a thing it's um sort of out there um you know I, I and what i would say to that question is is, is this it's like you know journalists themselves it, it's one person's opinion so i i'm up against someone's opinion <laughs> um i can't influence that guy or that lady's opinion at all um you know i always try to give good copy um mm-hmm. when i was doing interviews um but you know the the the, re- the reality is it's it's always like um you know like the bill hicks um sort of sketch where bill hicks uh says right um it's the gates of heaven god sat down the journalist comes up to the gates of heaven god says to the journalist well, you wee hack. What have you done in life? The journalist sits there and says, well, um, I criticise Led Zeppelin's album. Um, I criticised uh, the Beatles album. Um, I criticised Fleetwood's Mac's albums. And God sits there and says, um, what did you do in life? What did you create? What did you actually do? What did you create? Jameis says, well, nothing. I just criticised things. God said, so you spent your time that you had in life criticising other people's work that you didn't create. And that's what I'd say about my portrayal. <laughs> and what would you, what would you say about the media, would, was that tabloid press or would you include the musical press in that as well? Um, tab, I would say The Sun were pretty cool with us. The Daily Mirror were pretty cool with us. I'd say the broadsheets, the Times were cool. The Independent were cool. The Guardian were not too bad, really. Mm-hmm. Um, the main stuff 
sort of came from, I think, Rock Feedback, who were a website. They, they took a dislike to us. And the enemy, as we were not selling records. Yeah. So well, things, yeah. things had obviously gone well when we'd had the four top 40 hits. But when mm-hmm. the album didn't get to gold on the first outing, which that was what the label required, then enemy started putting the knife in. And then Q Magazine started putting the knife in. So both of those were the ones that were really, they were throwing some sort of punches that were really low blows, really yeah. low blows. Which, I mean, the music industry, the music press, should I say, is very fickle, isn't it? It's build them up, sell the magazine, and then move on to the next one. Um, what I would say, my episode that comes out tonight is... Anthony Thornton, we wrote the Libertines book bound together with Roger Sargent. And I'd text him, text him, text him the other day just to let him know it was coming out. And I said that I was speaking to you. And he said, Dominic Masters will be a brilliant guest, one of the few guys to make a mark on music. That's what he said. I, 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 I send uh, much. Thankness for him for saying that. Uh, yeah. but, most grateful. But what I would say is, he he has one of the better journalists I spoke to. I spoke to three or four, and then um, for what I got for him was, he just loved the music. You know what I mean? So you, it's you, you get different angles, but I, I kind of thought with him that he was, and for the right reasons. Which know all of them are. Yeah, I mean, there are, you know, so <clears throat> so you know, journalists that are in for the good. Yeah. Lester Lester Banks, you know. Mm-hmm. Both I got both of them, all of his works, right? What just doing that as well? On that Libertines book, um, Doherty said of Anthony Thornton, better than Lester Bangs. <laughs> Man, honestly, I love Lester Bangs. I yeah. love Nick Kent as well. Uh-huh. Nick Kent, right? There are journalists out there that back the Stooges, that back the Fall, mm-hmm. that back the Velvet Underground when record sales were not big, you know, and there are, you know, there are a few good guys out there, but generally, the, the, you know, what you're going up against is someone who generally, the more words they get on a page, the more yeah. they get paid. And if I speak quite a lot, which I do, they're going to get paid more. Mm-hmm. And if they put an angle, <laughs> if they put an angle on that story, they can maybe get a few more words in and get paid even more. Um, so you know, like it was originally, we'd had meant to have like a one page um, in the NME for the album, which ended up being a three page <laughs> interview and the front cover. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? So there's ways it worked for us. Yes, in that respect. Yeah. And there's ways that they spin it so badly on your way down that 
it does make it particularly difficult for you to move forward in the industry. Mm. But what what you've always got there is the fan base. Do you, do you think you still got? I mean, I'm st- I'm still listening to your music. Um, in terms I've, of numbers, you know, I got I got to look at it always like from a business plan, right? And I'll be always truthful in numbers. First one, we do 60,000. Move to the second album, I think roughly it did about 25,000, right, in wood parts. It's mm-hmm. not much. Right? You move down to the third, and we had something like 11,000 um, downloads and streams of the album. So that was the third one, which was um, Songs for the Disillusion. Uh-huh. So you're thinking... Yeah. Maybe five thousand to ten thousand tops. That's probably what we've got in terms of you know what I've got on Facebook in terms of coverage. There's two thousand people that I'm connected to. Are they all others fans? I don't know. <laughs> um, but generally, I think we've probably got about five to ten thousand tops, and that that's probably our niche um, mm. in terms of enough money from that to survive probably not and that's the thing it, after the second album i went back to work so you know i've been back to work nearly 14 years mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and that's it do you think that's is to is to do with spotify isn't it really because you're not you're, People only going out and buying an album because you can get it on Spotify and then you're getting, what, point twelve pence or something every time oh, played a hundred times or something. It's not, it's not too much, but you've got to think about it. If you were in your teenage years and, and there's a band that you like, now... You might be like me and you, or we're both working class. And maybe Bristol is 20 miles away, right? If I was Dominic age 13 in 2021, I wouldn't be off to Bristol to buy my product anymore. I'd be going, right, I'm listening to my band on YouTube. Mm. I'm listening to my band on Spotify for free. Yeah. Um, it's also it's allowed a lot of working class people to get music for free. Um, I think that's brilliant. Um, Whether it helps me, well, no, it doesn't help me as the artist. That's why I'm back at work. But you've got to see it from a a democratisation of music. Mm -hmm. Now, kids who, when I was 13, I I could only listen to Sonic Youth if I went and paid for it. Now you can go and listen to Sonic Youth on YouTube for free on part of the television that your mum bought. Yeah. Yeah. You see what I mean? So the kids get the music for free. So the way I look at it is like if I was young, I would want it for free. Oh, I, I mean, I'm saying that and then I'm uh, bombing my podcast. Are you on Spotify? <laughs> you know what I mean? So um, everybody's guilty of criticizing them and then. Using them for the lean benefit. Hey, I think that if working class kids can get 
Sonic Youth and Pavement, the whole back catalogue for free, and it inspires them to go on and form their own band. Okay, the band might not make it enough money <laughs> to be professional, <laughs> but you'll have a good hobby. Yeah. Um, right. Back to the Alan McGee book is a point that was a point that I thought to Alan McGee as he seems to just at some point been involved in most of the bands in the world. So like Oasis. <laughs> Oasis, yeah, all the good ones, the Labertines, <laughs> yeah, um, yourselves, Paddington. Oh, he's, he's coming Las back. Vegas. Uh-huh. He's coming back. He's managing Las Vegas. He's bringing the view back, um, amongst many others. You know what I mean? Primal Scream and all that, all, all these connections. So, what was it like working with him at Pop Tones? And obviously, oh, you touched on it a wee bit. It's great, but it's hard work to get to him initially, right? So what I did, I thought, right, it had been the two-year mark, or I think it had been the year-and-a-half mark, and I was like, knew we were good enough to get signed, but we were still not signed. Um we were getting cagey as a band because we weren't signed. So I've started ramping up like a business model of how we were going to fucking get signed. So I thought, well, look, I've got to make a list of everybody I actually like or I respect. So the list was quite small. Um, And then I had to make a list of record labels that maybe I didn't respect. It was quite long. Mm-hmm. And then I made a list of managers that I actually knew their name of. And then I made a list of managers that I knew of through other people. I had a nice piece of paper of leads in terms of where I could go. Then I needed to find out where these people lived in terms of when do they get into touch points where they speak to plebs like me mm-hmm. who are working class scum in their eyes but they're willing to speak to one of us because they're in a social situation so what i started doing is i started finding out every fucking record company's party night a month so I'd find out when fucking Rough Trade had their night. There were a lot of arrogant people at those parties, mm-hmm. particularly a lot of backslapping, loads of backslapping, people sucking each other's cocks off, literally. Um, but that's what Rough Trade is. It's that kind of environment. Um, then you had other bigger labels. You might have a Sony or you might have a Universal that might have subsidiary labels like Mercury and Vertigo, and they'd have parties. And you might have other smaller labels that were doing band nights. So I started just doing like Monday night, Tuesday night, Wednesday night, every night doing doing the rounds, taking my CDs in my pockets, you know. And then I started making an even more... um, 
wise wiser decision mm-hmm. uh, i said that i would only give the demo cd to a guy or a lady who's at a label if they gave me their telephone number if they didn't give me their telephone number i wouldn't give them the cd so i started bartering with the people that i'm pitching to work out if they really gave a shit about me mm-hmm. did they want that cd of my band did they give a fuck about me or are they just saying i'm taking your cd now fuck off out of my sight you're in my social scene i don't want you here take the cd now go away little boy and there's a lot of that there's a lot of nasty men and a lot of nasty women mm-hmm. in the industry that just you've got access to them by going to their club night they don't like it and they just want you to fuck off so i started realizing that certain labels there was a real big fuck off policy right they're really like ego ego very egotistic but i knew mcgee was meant to be nice everyone said mcgee was nice he was a good man you could talk to him Mm -hmm. He, he would let you talk and he was humble and he was approachable and he was affable and i liked oasis so that was a big thing definitely maybe the first album is a fucking winner so i thought okay i'll start going to the club nights then i knew a lady called emily emily mann um who's just a lovely lady um she knew alan mcgee i said could you at least find out when mcgee is meant to actually turn up at his club night because every week it's danny watson Uh as much as i love danny watson there's no alan mcgee there and i can't sell my band to danny watson because he's a non-decision maker danny watson might hear this and say non-decision maker but really, <laughs> I'm promising you, the decision maker in terms of my career was Alan McGee, mm-hmm. right? So I had to get to the decision maker. But unfortunately, I was turning up each week. I had to go to work in the mornings. So I could only be at the club between 8 o'clock to roughly about midnight and then get home for 1 o'clock, get up at 6 a.m. and go to work. The club would go on till 2 or 3 sometimes mcgee wouldn't get there till late and i'd miss him and a lot of the time i would miss him so i found out from emily when he was there when i got to him i was like a rock violet um i just like i literally just grabbed hold of him um and i was probably a bit in his face um but i just told him what the plan was you know we wrote this is for the poor which I thought was not a bad song. Um, And I thought it might make people think. And even if it was a load of rich kids and a load of middle-class kids looking down on me because I'm a peasant and I'm writing about my hatred of them, then there might be a load of working-class kids out there that get it. And that was my my guess, is that there would be a few working-class kids that go, do you know what? He's right. Mm -hmm. Fuck him. Fuck him. McGee got it. McGee got it in like the first pitch. Yeah. Um, he, he just totally got it. Um, and then it was the hassle of getting a gig from him. That took 
a couple of months and I'm doing well in terms of playing at the Barfly, selling out at the Barfly. You know, we're doing well at the Rhythm Factory. We've got baby shambles supports. We've got libertine supports. We're doing well, but it's like hard to get the Death Disco gigs. Then we got the Death Disco gigs sold out. Then we were on that Death Disco like once a month, selling out for six months. Mm -hmm. Every night, McGee was coming down to watching us. Labels were coming to watch us. Loads of fucking press were watching us and they could see it was organic and that we created this ourselves. This wasn't something that was created by an industry. It was created by the fact that we had fucking parties and we looked after our fan base. McGee got it, signed us for the single. Everyone told me it wouldn't get reviewed. Everyone told me that Enemy wouldn't back it. We got single of the week in Enemy and we went in at number 42 in the charts and then the majors came in for me. And it was just like, well, look, you've all been really fucking nasty to us in terms of, like, really disrespectful to us as yeah. a band because we wrote This Is For The Poor. And, you know, it's a load of posh kids, really, that hated the song because they're a load of posh kids that went to the Brit school or they went to a public school and they're musicians and they're trying to look cool and someone has called them out for their class, that's mm -hmm. all, and said, like, so you born with a silver spoon? Well, most of us have a really difficult route into music. You've been taught how to play classical piano and classical guitar by the time you're 11. Most of us don't get that. And then when we went in at 42, it was just like, fuck you all. It was just like, yeah, you posh fuckers. <laughs> so we went in at 42 and then the majors came in and then McGee was like, okay, you've got one single deal. I could get you through to Mercury Vertigo, who are part of Universal, uh, part of Universal. Then Sony came in for us. Then Rough Trade came in for us. Sony were really nice, but offered 20 grand less. Um, Rough Trade were really, really like that pompous and kind of made me feel like I should be signing for them, even though they're offering me 50 grand for two albums, whereas Universal are offering me 135 he's grand for one. He's having said, I'm just going to plug my computer in. But yeah, so, you, you know, you had the three deals on the table. Mm -hmm. You had 130, 135 grand being offered from Universal. You had 115 grand from Sony. You had 50 grand for two albums from Rough Trade, who were also talking down to you, being very condescending every time we had any engagement with them. And people go, why didn't you take two albums with Rough Trade? The Smiths were signed on Rough Trade. The Strokes were signed on Rough Trade, where you had 135 grand being offered to you by Universal, but generally go, look, you've got one album to make it. Good luck. If you make it, you're in. If you don't make it, you're dropped. And I thought that approach was more honest. It was just very much like, we'll do what we can for you. We'll market it you to the hills. We'll throw you at the press. We'll put McGee behind you. We'll do everything we can. Mm -hmm. Without McGee, I would never have had that access to Universal. So, you know, I was very, very fortunate to sign for Pop Tones. 
and very fortunate that he negotiated the deal alongside my lawyer, Paul Spraggan, um, that got us through to Mercury Vertigo, got us through to Universal. We had two lovely years there. Probably the most wild band they ever had. <laughs> um, so it was good. Had so do you think then, well, obviously, I think you do, um, that was the reason behind the guerrilla gags and things like that, because you knew you had the one-year deal and you had to go out and sell it. Exactly. You just had to push every every button that you had available in your portfolio to get to as many people as possible. And if they hear the song and they like it and they buy it, we're in with a chance. If they hear it and they think, oh, God, I don't like this, and so so be it. But I have you had two years to make it with Rough Trade on two albums. Yeah, you'd have five years, mm-hmm. you know, and you'd plod along on fifty grand divided between four band members. Right? Think about that as a living wage between four band members over five years at fifty grand. Right? It's fuck all. Yeah. And I just quit. I quit my job for the single so that I could do the UK tour with the band because my work wouldn't allow me to have five weeks off. So I quit the job, took the single deal and was hoping that the single sold well so that I could get a major deal. Luckily, it all happened, but it was a big gamble. I had to quit a job. I had no mum and dads with money backing yeah. me in those times and I still had to pay for my rent. Mm-hmm. Sure. So... You have to go with the bigger deal, don't you? Yeah, so it all makes sense, doesn't it? What is, um, what's your relationship like with McGee now? Can you still speak? Very good. I'd say very good. Um, what I would say is this, is that, you know, I haven't seen him since, I don't know, maybe five, six years, something like that. Mm. So it's been a while. But... I've been back at work for 14 years, you know. Yeah. I'm not I'm not in a I'm not I'm not in a social scene with music people. Um and I'm not in a social scene with people from my past really. Um so we don't cross any paths. Um I, my band we haven't got a label or anything like that. I've been at work since 2008. Most of the band have got jobs in some shape or form. Um, it's pretty hard to sort of I have any engagement with him because I, I don't see where I would I would ever meet him anymore, really. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, maybe if um, if there's a pop tones documentary, a bit like the creation one. <laughs> uh, so I mean that, that kind of leads us on as well. Eh? What's next for the band? Because um, um, you are still together, but just... Um, yeah. Not I so mean, much music coming out. Eddie is in Iraq. Right. In the, he's in the Marines. Mm-hmm. Right? So he's been there for one year. He gets back from Iraq in December. Joe has been sort of 
you know, moving around. Um, and obviously he had a lot of problems with COVID with his work. Mm-hmm. Um, because he was, uh, he was a professional drum tech. Um, so then COVID came in and obviously all the live work stopped. Mm-hmm. Um, so he was hit pretty bad. Uh, Jimmy has sort of just got a house and settled down with his long-term girlfriend, Annie. Um, Steph is a professional keyboard where he does like music in as a session musician. Um, Steve McCready, um, the other bass player, um, he's just doing an apprenticeship at the moment um, for to be a, a computer uh, technician. Um, and then I've got my job, obviously, doing business development. So we've all got our own jobs. Um, and so since the last late album come out in 2013, it's been been pretty hard to get us together because we've all yeah. been in different... Like, cats. Yeah, we're, well, you know, the two... Johnny and Jimmy are down in Brighton. Oh, and it, like Johnny does journalism mm-hmm. um, and he, he works um, as sort of a kind of nomadic job as well. They're down in Brighton. Eddie's normally either in Estonia or Iraq. And then Joe is in London. I'm in London. Steve's in London. And Steph's on the outskirts of London. So getting us together has been pretty hard over the last few years. We Mm -hmm. nearly were going to have rehearsals before COVID. And then COVID happened. The last two years, just gone. Yeah, and then now we have rehearsals booked in uh, for December, uh, which is the thirteenth, the fourteenth, the fifteenth, the sixteenth, the seventeenth, and the eighteenth. And we've hired a flat. I don't know if that's a good thing. (laughs) (laughs) Um, We've hired a flat, and we're all going to stay together for a week. The, we've got 42 songs, something like that, mm-hmm. of which 32 of them are virtually finished and the other 10 need some putting together. We rehearse them in December and then it could be any time between February and July to record the fourth album. And then you would think... We see how that goes, and then I would imagine it will be another five or six years between albums. <laughs> <laughs> Being honest with you, yeah, I think every few years is all we can manage, really. But I mean, just the prospect of an album coming out is something to look forward to, and that's yeah, yeah, it's just, it's, I mean, I'll give you an idea, like. I think we had 11,000 downloads for um, the fourth album. Uh, Sorry, yeah, the third album. (laughs) And um, we got 450 quid. (laughs) (laughs) And that was because what we did, we thought, well, we'll just be honest and say, pay what you want, you know. And we ended up with 450 quid from 11,000 people downloading. (laughs) 
Jeez. Well, yeah. You so know, maybe we charge it. Maybe we charge a quid this time. Yeah. Do it for a quid. You know. You to, you do it for a, eleven grand would be all right. So you know, if everyone pays a quid, that's eleven grand. That would get us our next album because you've got to think about it in terms of costings for the album. This will probably be three or four grand mm-hmm. that you don't you don't get any return on investment for. You know, you you just paying out, putting the music. You might get like four or five hundred quid maybe back from people downloading it, but that's my point. Is we're not going to make any money on it. It's just more. Uh, from a historical point of view now, in terms of legacy. What about, have you, have you ever thought about um, the crowdfunding? Like the... No, I don't know at all. I, we we discussed it, but we just think it, it's, it feels a bit eerie. Mm-hmm. It's like, I, I, just, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't like to ask. You know, I think we can fund it ourselves. We've all got jobs, right? It just means that I have to drink less wine, you know, <laughs> smoke less fags, um, you know, and eat less red meat, uh, whatever it is to make sure that we have to pay for it. Um, you know, we, we go, we're lucky enough to have work. Um, not all people have jobs at the moment, you know, yeah. These are cra- these are crazy times. I'm grateful to have a have a job. I think we're all grateful in the band to have a job. So I wouldn't like to ask people who generally you've got to look at others fans of working class, probably broke as well. If they're not broke, they're intelligent working class that have got jobs as well. And I think it's too much to ask your own fan base. Hi, <laughs> I know you bought the last three albums, but how about funding this album? You know, it just, it feels too like, I can't do it to our lot because I know most of them. And mm-hmm. this is, you know, touches into one of your questions about the special relationships with your fans. That's the problem. We know our fan base and literally we do, right? So it, it can become a bit like, you're asking people that you actually know that you've known for fucking other bands been going since 2002 for 20 years. Some fans have stuck with us or have even been there just 10 years and you've met them at concerts. You've met them at after parties. They've already put a good shift in by buying the albums previously, traveling around the country to, to go and watch you. So you feel I'd feel too bad to ask on a crowdfund. I couldn't do it. I think we should fund it until, you know, there's a chance ever of a label that thinks, okay, they got 5,000 fans, 10,000 fans. It's worth taking a punt on them. Um, you know, in the past, we had to sit down with a label and they're, they're, they're uh, cooking vinyl. Uh-huh. They're, quite cool, they're quite cool guys, the, the two MDs. He said, oh, the two MDs, they sat down and they're, they're really good. They, they said, look, we've been number crunching and we don't think you've got 5,000 fans. I'm sorry. We said, they, they reckoned at the time, they said, well, you might have 3,000, you might have 4,000, but we don't think you've got 5,000. And then we're getting 11,000 downloads. So, you know, you, you kind of sort of think, okay, mm-hmm. any label that's going to take a chance on you 
is needs that minimum 5,000 ticket value to make us even take a chance on us, really. Right. So it's a hard one to justify as well. And also, there's a lot of searches online for the others. As you're probably aware, there's about 15 different bands called The Others. Yeah. There's the original Others from Ireland in the 1960s, who were a folk band. There was the Italian Garage Rock Others um, from the 1980s. Um, there's the Others, the Rap Duo um, in Atlanta, Georgia. There's the Pakistani Death Metal Band the others as well and the list goes on so also you've got to see it from a record label's perspective they're going right how many searches online for the others fuck knows what that search ratio is but how mm. many of them are actually searching for my band the others <laughs> as opposed to the other death metal band in pakistan yeah <laughs> it's a hard one to if you're a label you're going god they've got a lot of figures for searches for the others <laughs> well so we're just waiting then we'll wait for these rehearsals and see what comes out of that I'm looking forward to an album at some point anyway I'll put I'll, I'll buy five just to kind of boost your <laughs> boost your wages a bit um, no no, we got jobs. Just buy, just buy the one copy. That'll be sufficient. Right, just before we go, Dominic, on uh, the last part of the podcast, where uh, I asked my guests to come up with four heroes to come for dinner. Um, four heroes, dead or alive, uh, for whatever walk of life you you want them to be. Um, and obviously, I want to know what you're cooking them as well. If you're a good cook. So I yeah, just fired this, this was tricky. This was the hardest question. Um, and I, I, I thought about this as well because I've got a small list here. Uh-huh. <laughs> and it's all right. So ones that definitely get through. Marky e. Smith. Mm-hmm. I'd probably feed him amphetamines. <laughs> um, just my my roadie um was a guy called jeff katani um a lovely guy and uh jeff did the one concert with uh the fool as the roadie and uh, in those days the band were doing maybe rather more expensive um kind of consumptions jeff turned up at the fall and um as far as I know, he uh, said, uh, oh, how are you, Mark? Uh, can I offer you anything? And uh, as far as I'm aware, uh, at the time, Mark e. Smith um, said, there's nothing I need here. And mm-hmm. opened up a sheet of newspaper. The newspaper was like a copy of the Daily Mirror. And he opened up the Daily Mirror in front of Jeff. He said, Jeff. Come and have a look at this. You can see why I don't need anything. In the middle of the Daily Mirror, there was about, Jeff reckons, two ounces of amphetamines in the middle of the newspaper that Marky Smith was getting his um, finger and just dabbing 
I'm putting onto his tongue. I'm dabbing. I'm putting onto his tongue. I'm dabbing. I'm putting onto his tongue. And Jeff said, uh, he just sort of went, okay then, obviously, can't help you with anything. Um, I'll just get a drink at the bar and uh, leave you to uh, get on with your speed. Um, so uh, I, for Marky Smith, I would probably feed him uh, base amphetamine. Where I would where where I would procure these these things, who knows? Um, the second one would be Iggy Pop. Um, again, Stooges have been a big influence on my life, and I think I think Marky Smith and Iggy would get on quite well at dinner. I would like to think so. Um, in terms of cooking him something. These days, he's quite a lean individual, you know. Um, I know he likes his exercise and does his Tai Chi and stuff. So, uh, I don't know. Um, would what, what what do you feed Iggy, Iggy Pop? Does he even eat meat? I don't know. So, I'd, I'd, I'd be dubious about what I'd be able to, to feed Iggy. I wouldn't want to piss him off. Maybe a pop noodle. <laughs> um, and then um, Kim Gordon, I would put forward from Sonic Youth. Mm-hmm. Um, I Sonic Youth probably like the band of my teens, really. Um, a lot of people were into Nirvana at the time, so I I obviously liked Sonic Youth. <laughs> so, you know, yeah. um, I was kind of like that kind of kid. If if everyone liked Nirvana, I liked Sonic Youth. Um, and I, I love Sonic Youth. Um, so, like, it was my first concert that I ever travelled outside of Somerset for. Mm-hmm. And I had to get a bus from Somerset to London, age 16, go and watch Sonic Youth on the washing machine tour uh, at Kentish Town Forum. And they were absolutely incredible. It was either like 94, 95, 96, something like that. So I would have been like two years before uni. Then I went to see Sonic Youth as much as I could in London um, and saw that sort of legendary gig that they did at um, the Scala where they played all of their greatest hits before the band sort of said goodbye. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think she might be vegetarian or vegan. Um, so a nice salad probably for Kim Gordon. Uh-huh. A, nice, a nice salad. Then it gets tricky for the final person. It's like I did wonder if I should do this as as um, lineage to my county. So I'm from Somerset. Um, the county is known for. Not just my band, um, the others, but are known for a band that symbolises everything about our county, and that's the Wurzels. <laughs> the, the Wurzels' lead singer um, was a gentleman by the name of Adge Cutler. Adge Cutler, uh, I'm hoping you already know this man, and maybe you own all of the Wurzels' back catalogue already. I just punted him on eBay there and I made a fortune. Shows I can buy near others records. Oh, you've definitely, <laughs> definitely hit on something here. Um Adge Cutler is is he's a legend. 
so what happened with the Wurzels is that when the Wurzels were big in the 70s, Ad Cutler died just before they became big, right? Mm-hmm. So imagine it's a bit like ACDC with the original singer of ACDC. He died and then ACDC became big, didn't they? Right? Yeah. Well, it's very similar with the Wurzels. Wurzels not quite as big as ACDC, but the Wurzels are quite big in our county, that's for sure. Aj Cutler died very close to the Combine Harvester song. So Aj had written all the songs and everything, but dead. The 70s happened. The Wurzels become this massive band. Um, and I would like to have Aj Cutler at dinner because he's like, I know the Wurzels inside out. You know, they're Somerset's finest band. You know, it's hard for my band to make an impression as, mm. as a person born from Somerset when I'm competing against the Wurzels. But no one really knows Aj Cutler, who is really the founding father and the songwriter of the Wurzels. And I think it would be hilarious having, like, kind of cool guys like Iggy Pop and Marky Smith, a really cool lady like Kim Gordon, and then Aj Cutler speaking in a Somerset <laughs> accent, going, can you pass the, the pepper over, Kim? And Iggy, can you uh, can you drink a pint of cider? And, you know, maybe in a Somerset accent, that might just uh, make dinner go nicely. That sounds amazing. <laughs> it does, man. That, it's, um, it's something a bit different, isn't it? Who who else did you have in mind other than Aj Cutler? You can oh. have a few honorary mentions. Oh, thank you. All right. Well, these people I've got kicking around the corners. I would like Danny Fields. So, um, sorry about this. No. This is the Bible. This is the best music book ever written, in my opinion. People who are listening to the podcast might go, what's Dominic on about now? This is the original copy of Wonderland Avenue. Um, I had a former partner, Sally uh, Dunstan, and she bought Wonderland Avenue first edition for me for my birthday about 10 years ago. Uh And I always look at it as just the greatest present anybody could have ever given me. it's just wonderful. I hold it, treasure it. And it's first edition. Danny Fields wrote it. And it's basically about Iggy Pop and the Stooges mm-hmm. in the early days and all of the work that Danny Fields did with the Stooges and the Doors. It's just the most amazing book. And then I went to watch the Danny Fields um, film at Hackney Empire, um, or not Hackney Empire, somewhere up in Hackney where there's a cinema, um, about five years ago. And that Danny Fields documentary is now on YouTube, and that's brilliant. So I would like Danny Fields. And I think he's vegetarian. Kathleen Hanna, um, obviously, you know, riot girl in her own respect. Um I went to see La Tigre many, many times. I love La Tigre. I think Kathleen Hanna is wicked. I think she's vegan, I think. So maybe a salad. Um, Just need to get a big bowl for 
Yeah, a big bowl for the vegans <laughs> and vegetarians on this one. Um, and then James Williamson, who was the guitarist in the Stooges' third album, Raw Power, um, and then Ron Ashton, who was the guitarist for the first two Stooges albums. Um, that And that will probably... Oh, and Nico. I put Nico in as well. I thought Nico would be good fun at dinner as well. Um, uh, she's deaf in one ear. Um, and she was uh, pretty wild. And I thought, yeah, Nico might add some German sensibility to the dinner. Yeah, that sounds amazing. <laughs> it does, man. It sounds really good. Um, <laughs> will you fat them on your, your, your table? Well, that is a question. Um, this table, I don't know, this is probably... We're told, I think we might get six around it. We might get six. Yeah. I've been here a few years now, and I've, I lead a certainly a lot quieter life these days. I just clock in and clock out, go to work. And, um, my days of having any parties have yeah. seems like seems like um, seems like a different world. That you know, something that I always remember like quite vividly. Uh, but it seems strange that it ever occurred. Yeah, uh, but it, it seems um, they went really quick, didn't it? It doesn't feel like kind of 15, 20 years ago. Like, see, <laughs> yeah. like of it, I mean, like the last couple of people I spoke to was Lloyd, um, Alfie for the Holloways, um, oh, yeah. Gemma for Baby Shambles, all these people, and it's kind of... Everybody's the same, they don't know where the times went. It's just kind of <laughs> like everybody still wants to be playing these songs, but it's moved on 15 years. Just yeah, a flash. Well, I, I always sort of give this example of um, it's 1996 and I'd never seen the dam to play, so I'm excited, I'm really excited. So I get my ticket to go and watch the damned. And they're playing the garage to 600 people. And it's 20 years after 76. Okay. This is one of the greatest bands that have walked the planet, the damned. And yeah. I'm watching them aged 18 years old play to 600 people. And I was like, what the fuck? <laughs> this is madness. Okay. Now the damned in 2021 play two nights sold out at the roundhouse to 3000 people a night. That's more fair. That's more fair. But in 96, they were playing to 600 people. Um, and I think that's what people sort of don't realise is that, you know, the first 20 years after a scene, mm -hmm. it, it's kind of those bands go off a cliff. There's no sort of um, renaissance or um, sort of uh, nostalgia I really think until you get in at the 35 year stage, so 40 year stage. We're looking at a big, massive others tour in 2025. 2025? No. No, 2035. <laughs> Get get the band back together. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm looking forward to it, Dominic. You've been a fabulous guest. 
No bother, it's Thanks been lovely. Thanks for having you. I'm, I'm just going I, to end I, it here and then I'll get a wee chat with you. I really Maybe. enjoyed it. Thank you very much for your time. Magic. I hope you all enjoyed this episode of Time for Heroes podcast. If you would like to get in touch, the best way is on the Facebook page, Time for Heroes podcast, or on Instagram at Time for Heroes podcast, or Twitter at Time for Heroes P1, or drop me an email at Time for Heroes pod at gmail.com You'll find Time for Heroes on all podcast platforms including Spotify, Apple, Google and Amazon. Please leave a review where you can, share with others and more importantly, enjoy. Enjoy.